You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello, and welcome to Coronavirus Crisis Update. Today, I'm speaking with Gary Edson, president of the COVID Collaborative. Before we start the interview, I want to mention a brand new white paper we've launched this week entitled Time to Escalate U.S. Leadership on COVID-19 and Beyond. The world is now entering a far more dangerous and uncertain phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, one that fundamentally changes the calculations of the United States and others. Domestically, the U.S. is witnessing an accelerated consolidation of gains as more Americans are vaccinated, and that pivot toward greater control and confidence allows for increased U.S. international engagement. But domestic progress remains fragile. In a new white paper, the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security urges the U.S. government to dramatically scale up its leadership in the global COVID-19 response along five fronts. Strengthening White House leadership, accelerating the development of a truly global vaccination strategy, increasing global finance for pandemic preparedness, systematically addressing economic crises in low and middle income countries, and investing in building long term health security capacity. The US will not achieve security, nor will the rest of the world, until far more has been done to tackle this pandemic globally, now and into the long term. The urgency to act and the stakes could not be higher. You can find the white paper and an adjoining commentary at our homepage, csis.org slash global health. Now on to our interview. We're joined today by a good friend, a longstanding friend, Gary Edson. Gary is the president of the COVID Collaborative. He brings a long career, which we're going to talk about in a moment long and very distinguished career as a senior official, senior White House official during the Bush administration, as the leader of Conservation International, as the president of this very important new entity, the COVID Collaborative, and many other things. And he's had high impact, as we'll talk about, in public health, in institutional innovation, in this new response to the pandemic, and we're going to begin with a discussion around his own personal career path. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for all your contributions. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. So, tell us a bit. Give us a give us a give us a quick kind of overview of your your the arc of your career. It's very diverse. Uh, it's very creative and. Um, Tell us a little bit, give us an overview, and then I want to come back in and focus on the period of the creation of PEPFAR and, and, and the Global Fund and the response and the exercise of U.S. leadership during the HIV pandemic 20-plus uh, years ago. But start, give us a quick overview. As you noted, the, the career is diverse. I often say that I have a career path that looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's not exactly linear. It's alternated between government, business, and the nonprofit world. Uh, but I, I argue that there's a method to the madness. In government, and I served under three presidents, I served at 
the State Department under President Reagan. I served at USTR as general counsel and chief of staff there under the first Bush administration. And I served as deputy national security advisor and deputy national economic advisor to George W. Bush. So in government, I focused on the smart power issues of global development, trade, finance, health, poverty reduction, education, the environment. In business, I have my MBA as well as my JD. In business, I focus primarily on private equity and turnarounds. And in the nonprofit world, where I've done a variety of things, including not only heading Conservation International, but heading the Clinton Bush Haiti Fund after the devastating 2010 earthquake there. In the nonprofit world, I've tried to combine the two experiences by focusing on bringing an entrepreneurial approach to major social challenges. You know, if I, if I had a business card, it probably would say crises are us. <laughs> That's very well put. That's very well put. You also had a high impact on the pink ribbon, red ribbon, right? In terms of that initiative in the, at the Bush Presidential Center. I did. President Bush focused on cervical cancer after leaving office. And what we focused on in particular was the intersection between cervical cancer and HIV. You know, here we had a situation after 20 years of PEPFAR and the Global Fund where you had young women and girls living with HIV, but dying of a perfectly preventable disease, cervical cancer. So we launched with the Susan G. Komen Group, USAID, and others, uh, an initiative called Pink Ribbon, Red Ribbon. And we focus particularly on HIV-positive women who were highly susceptible to dying of cervical cancer. And we developed an, an innovative strategy to prevent HIV-positive women from dying from cervical cancer within a generation in Africa by focusing on vaccinating those HIV-positive women against the HPV virus. And that was a, it, it began, Pink Ribbon, Red Ribbon began as sort of a on-the-ground initiative, but we eventually transformed it into a public-private partnership, the Partnership to End, End AIDS and Cervical Cancer in Africa which is still run out of the Bush Institute. Yes. Let's go back to the tenure of uh, President George W. Bush and your role there and, and your observations as PEPFAR was launched, as the Global Fund was launched, as the G7 came to the table in a very significant way. What was the, in your view, what were the lessons learned from that in terms of the exercise of U.S. power? Well... The, the, the first lesson is that when, it, when you look at the history of global health and you look at polio and Ebola and HIV, you realize that nothing of significance happens without U.S. leadership, that it takes U.S. leadership to galvanize the world. And if you think about PEPFAR, that leadership came directly from the White House. It came from the Oval Office. You know, the, the name, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief was no accident. It wasn't the Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. It was the President's Emergency Plan. And it was meant to be owned by whoever occupied the Oval Office. 
Now, it's been owned in various de varying degrees since President Bush, but there was no question that after PEPFAR was launched, if there were issues with it, they ended up on the president's desk. Um, and it was the president who really drove the initiative. And it was, in fact, the president who, who, who was the one who dared to imagine what was then unimaginable. Remember, in, when PEPFAR was launched, there were only 50,000 people in all of Africa on antiretroviral right. treatments. And he said, we're going to put millions on it. The other thing that was no accident about, about the name was the yeah. use of the word emergency, because it created a sense of urgency that was critically important to galvanizing global action. And both things, I think, are missing in the current situation, that, that leadership from the Oval Office on the global situation and a sense of urgency about it. And also the ability to leverage other powerful partners in this picture, too. Why do you think when we look at that moment, that moment of crisis in the early naught decade when HIV was tearing through southern and eastern Africa, it was seen as destabilizing, as globalizing, and President Bush and those around him made this determination that this was going to become a centerpiece of what became the State of the Union address in January of 2003. And you were involved in that six months leading up to that, along with Tony Fauci and Mark Dybul and Rob Rev Robert Redfield and others in planning this out and engaging the president on what scale, what ambition, what targets and and guaranteeing that you were going to have bipartisan support in the in Congress. I mean, we were very active in the CSIS HIV AIDS task force, which was co-chaired by Bill Frist and John Kerry in that period in getting action underway and authorizing legislation and the like in that period. So it was a remarkable moment. And you had G G7 partners who were flush with cash who came to the table with it. Today's much different when you look at a crisis that's many times bigger than what the HIV, the scary, harrowing HIV crisis, this is much bigger and obviously much more terrifying and de damaging. And yet we're not seeing the, the coalescence of leadership of the kind that we saw. Why is that, do you think? Well, I, I think there are a number of factors. The first one is that unlike HIV in 2003, when PEPFAR was launched and the Global Fund uh, really became active, COVID isn't seen as an inevitable death sentence. And I, I think at some level that has an impact. And yet, of course, we know that it's cost 4 million lives, 2 million in just the last six months. Uh, so the level of devastation is similar to, to HIV. But nonetheless, that perception that it's not an inevitable death sentence may, may underlie some of the lack of energy around the global inequities that's occurring. I think another factor is there's a perception that COVAX, the multinational vaccine platform, is going to take care of vaccinating the poorest countries. And yet it's yet to prove that it's up to the challenge. Having shipped just, what, 121 million doses out of 3.3 billion administered worldwide. And even if successful, it's COVAX is there to to meet upwards of 30% of requirements. So Right. 
It's a baseline. It's not a solution. It's a baseline, an important baseline. It's an important baseline, but I'd argue that it, it, it aimed too low from the start. Should have aimed for 60 to 70 percent and then backed into what was needed from that. But I think that there's a couple other factors that as you look at PEPFAR versus COVID, and the, the next factor, I think, is that as wealthy countries ramp up vaccinations, there's a rush that we're seeing to return to normal, to put COVID in the rearview mirror. And that's why, ironically, I think we're seeing countries pivot to preparedness for the next pandemic, leaving the job of ending this one dangerously unfinished. And then, and then there's another factor that's really, I think, critical, and that there's a lack of global advocacy. There's no coalition of strange bedfellows of the type that George Bush rallied and that rallied the world against AIDS, activists and faith-based organizations, the private sector and the national security community coming together, what Bono at one point said, called soccer moms, church folk, church folk and rock stars. We don't see that level of advocacy around the global inequity between the vaccine haves and the have-nots. Where are they? I don't know. And then we're back to the final thing, which is how we began this discussion, namely the lack of leadership. That The other things may be derivative, derivative of that, that if we had that same level of leadership. And for George Bush, addressing HIV was a calling. And, and not only a personal calling, but he saw it as a calling for the nation. And he saw it as a matter of moral imperative, a question of conscience and a reflection of our ideals as a nation. But he also saw that it was in profoundly in our self-interest to, yeah. to do something about HIV. And he married that, that moral imperative with that self-interested national security imperative to really drive this initiative through. And by the way, it was that coalition that also helped us get that bipartisan support on Capitol Hill that you were talking about. I mean, just to add a couple of thoughts on uh, the uh, dissecting what's different today. I mean, clearly this this pandemic has has devastated the United States. It's devastated many other wealthy and powerful countries. And that has put everybody back on their heels in terms of the threat, the existential threat, the need to respond to this. It has all this cascade of impacts. So nationalism or inwardness, there's a tension. There's a, a deep tension between the domestic agenda versus the international agenda. And that leads to a lot of dissonance and a lot of hesitation. We've seen that President Biden began to step out of that at the G7 in ways that were promising and encouraging. Uh, but there's still a long way to go. And he's having trouble finding partners. I mean, you look, the G7 didn't exactly rise to the occasion very much to support some of the actions, the big, you know, the 500 million dose contribution the U.S. brought to the table right before the G7. The other things is, you know, our we're we're seeing a world where multilateralism is really frayed right now, and bringing it back is very difficult. I think there was an enormous price paid when the Trump administration, in the first year of this of this pandemic, abdicated and chose a path of confrontation with China and attack upon WHO. I mean that 
locked us into a pretty toxic geostrategic confrontation. It paralyzed the Security Council. It had this cascading negative impact, uh, the exact opposite of trying to form a coalition. Uh, quite the quite the opposite. It was very fragmentary. The impact of all of that. What are your thoughts on 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 those dimensions? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that frayed in particular was the G7 itself. You know, in addition to my other roles, I was the Sherpa, or the chief negotiator for the G7 for President Bush. Not not just the G7, but all the presidential summits, APEC, and the summits of the Americas the U.S.E.U. summits, et cetera. And we tried to turn the G7 from a mere talk shop into something that was really action-oriented. And instead of producing 40-page communiques on every topic under the sun, we would produce a two-page chairman summary and then action plans. The G7 Africa Action Plan, for example, was part and parcel of PEPFAR and the response to HIV, but addressed all the underlying issues of poverty and education and economic opportunity. And we used the G7 as a vehicle. Remember, the Global Fund was created by the G7. It wasn't a, a U.S. initiative or a British initiative. It was created by the G7. We need to get back to the point where the G7, which is still the largest collection of major democracies and the largest donors in the world where we get real leadership from the G7 collectively. Now, at that time, we not only had George Bush pushing, but you had Tony Blair in in the UK. You had Chirac in in France, who was uh, sometimes more talk than action, but nonetheless, was clamoring for action. And we need to get back to the point where we can leverage these international fora for real results and not just not just rhetoric. Well, the Germans will be chairing the G7 next year. They have their their elections September 26th. It'll be, you know, Chancellor Merkel stepping down after 16 years. It'll be very important to see what what leadership role the German government takes stepping forward into and 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 the german government has been has been profoundly impactful in a very positive way in a number of these issue sets whether it's public health or climate change and other things so i'm hopeful in that respect can we but before we move on here i want to ask you president bush is remains active remains a voice he he issued uh, an opinion piece on immigration he put a book out He's, he's remained a, a very important voice. What's your thoughts on this current situation vis-a-vis the pandemic, the role that he can play in that, in your view? Well, you know, President Bush has done what I think is the right thing, and he's been religiously adherent to it. Namely, once he was at left office, he didn't want to meddle in in the affairs of future presidents. Um, so he stuck to his agenda, which is, as you noted, immigration, veterans, wounded warriors, um, and cervical cancer, as we talked about, and voices of freedom around the world as well, amplifying those. 
he, I think he will, when he speaks out, he chooses his opportunities very carefully for maximum impact. And I, I think we'll, we'll see him do that uh, with respect to the, the current situation at some point. But uh, he's very savvy about choosing the opportunity for maximum impact. And when I say maximum impact, I mean real uh, acceptance of the message across party lines. Thank you. Gary, I'd like to shift to talk about the COVID Collaborative. We had the good fortune of partnering with you with COVID Collaborative along with three different units at Duke uh, and the Center for Global Development and putting out two letters, one in May, one in June, uh, in the lead up to the G7. One focused very much on the U.S. leadership and vaccine and the vaccine gap. The second focused more broadly on the G7 and what expectations and those were quite impactful, and it was a great pleasure to be able to partner with you on the on that, and that you and Krishna and Mark McClellan took that initiative and moved it forward. It was great, and I, and it's something that continues now. We're, we'll be having further discussions later today on some next steps on that. Tell us how did COVID Collaborative come about, and what was the vision? What was the concept for it? And then we can talk a bit about what its highest impacts have been in the period of its of its short short span of its life that's great and and i let me lay that out but skipping ahead i think the work we've been doing together on the uh global vaccine inequity is paradigmatic of the kind of work that that covid collaborative was designed to do now in terms of how it came about john bridgeland our ceo and I have worked together for many years. John ran the Domestic Policy Council in the White House while I was Deputy National Security Advisor and Deputy National Economic Advisor. We launched the collaborative in June or July, roughly, of 2020, with the inspiration and support of Ray Chambers, a philanthropist who you know who has held key positions with the United Nations, now with the World Health Organization, and with whom John and I had previously worked to produce the first White House summit on malaria, which launched right. Malaria No More. Right. And, and to us at the time, COVID proposed a simple question. Can a free and open society defend itself against an aggressively communicable disease? And we believe the answer is yes. If we recognize that we go up or down together, that spread of the virus in one state threatens all states. Defeating that threat is a calling for the nation as a whole. So what we did is we created this thing called the COVID Collaborative as what we aspired or what we hoped would be a reflection of the nation itself, mm -hmm. a bipartisan assembly of leaders in health, education, and the economy. So we've got former heads of the CDC and FDA, former secretaries of education, defense, homeland security, health and human services, directors of the White House Domestic Policy Council under Obama and Trump, heads of all the leading public health associations, former governors and senators, including our two co-chairs, Dirk Kempthorne, former Republican governor of Idaho, and Deval Patrick, former Democratic governor of Massachusetts, the leading business groups, 
the Business Roundtable, the Chamber, the National Association of Manufacturers, and importantly, leaders representing the diversity of the nation. When you went out, Gary, to enlist this impressive array of people, what was the pitch that you made to them? What did you sell them on? What was the idea there? What, what did they believe they were joining to do? What, what they believed that they were joining to do was try and transcend politics to reflect a basic underlying public health consensus and to try and come together collectively, not always as the entire group, but subsets of the group, so that the decision makers could be empowered with consensus recommendations. What was at the time that COVID Collaborative was first formed, the, the immediate crisis was the delays in testing. You recall the, the long wait times and how that vitiated the testing itself. And there were multiple recommendations as to what to do about testing. So if you were a governor or if you were a mayor, if you were a leader at the local level, you didn't know where to turn. And so what we thought was, let's bring these disparate groups together and see if we can hammer out a consensus on on those questions. And that's what the COVID collaborative was trying to do, to make one plus one equal three, to leverage the collective wisdom of this group of people and try and empower decision makers at all levels, federal, state, and, and local, with the resources they needed to respond effectively to the pandemic. I've been struck recently in reading Andy Slavitt's book, Preventable, and reading Michael Lewis's book, Premonition, um, at the degree to which, in, in, as 2020 unfolded, and uh, you know the, the Trump White House basically from mid-April chose to abdicate federal leadership responsibilities. It looked good in the spring. There was a national consensus. We had brought the infection rates down to about under 20,000 a day. People were hopeful going into the summer, and then things began to rebound and unravel. We were up to 65,000 by July. The, The birth of the COVID collaborative tracks very closely with this sense that you get from reading Andy Slavitt's book, Michael Lewis's book, that there was a a sinking awareness of the magnitude of the crisis that we faced here in the United States and of a void in responding and the need to draw upon the incredible strength of our society to come to the table, um, that it was a moment in history. And and I think you beautifully kind of exploited that in a way in making the case for drawing on these different sectors and great experience and coming up with, I mean, Andy Slavitt, when he was doing his evening threads on Twitter about trying to explain to Americans what was happening and what needed to happen, he had two and a half million people reading those and he was doing them five or six nights a week. I mean, that's just one instance of this type of thing. Is that an accurate, is that an accurate reflection on the the spirit and, and core ethos of the COVID collaborative? Absolutely. In fact, one of the very first things we did was to bring together a host of experts and institutions to develop a call to action for governors. 
that was meant to lay out what was then missing, a national plan, a consensus approach to responding to COVID across the major pillars of an effective response, testing, tracing, public health and social measures, metrics, vaccines, and treatments. That call to action was hammered out in about eight weeks, with each pillar being led by multiple experts and institutions. And it was eventually endorsed in a very tough environment, very difficult environment politically. It was eventually endorsed by a bipartisan assembly of governors representing one in three Americans. And that was the first time since the crisis began that governors came together across state and party lines to endorse a common approach. Now, it was only governors representing one in three Americans, but it was still a significant advance. When did that moment happen? When did when did you launch the plan? I mean, you had to create the plan, which was a huge mobilization of expertise and thinking. Then you had to build the consensus around it and get the governors on board. When did you reach that point where you went went public with the endorsement of governors representing a third of America? It was in November. Okay. And, you know, there was a lot of noise, obviously, in the run-up to the election. So we sought a, a space to release it and found that that space when it would be uh, most impactful. And uh, it was truly a bipartisan, bipartisan assembly. And if you go to our website, you can, you can read the call to action. And I, I commend it to you. It still holds the test of time. And you can also read the endorsements of the governors and how interesting it is that the Democratic and the Republican governors were saying very much the same thing, that we need this common approach across states to contain this pandemic. Yeah, I think that's a powerful that was a powerful idea of getting region, regional groupings of governors talking to one another that cut across party lines where, where they had to have some kind of common common approaches for this to make any sense at all. And also, I think this was the period when they were there was 50 states competing for one another for scarcity, scarce PPE, oxygen, ventilators, vials, the most basic and elementary things that were not in the stockpile, that the markets were broken and there had been abdication at the federal level. So it really fell upon the governors to try and bring some rationality, order and transparency to the marketplace. That's right. And and we, we leveraged some of those voices as well. So, for example, when when the masking controversy first became so politicized, Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, who was then the vice chairman of the National Governors Association and now is chairman, we had him do an op-ed titled Masks are the Uniform of a Responsible Citizen. And subsequently, We've got Chris Christie talking about the need for vaccinations. So we're trying to, to, to leverage across party lines the collective experience of the COVID collaborative. Well, I assume then that today your attentions are turned, among other things, to the challenge of hesitancy that 30% of the population. I mean, Asa Hutchinson is among the most active and heroic governors 
in the South and in the in Arkansas, in the in going out on the road and talking to people all across the state about the need to rethink vaccination and 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 take up this opportunity. We do see more Republican voices being heard on this, but there's a lot more also that has to be done. What's your thinking on that? Well, we have, as you know, this partnership with the Ad Council on a vaccine education campaign happens to be the largest public education campaign in U.S. history. And and that campaign has both an air game, uh, PSAs, et cetera, the kind of thing that people think about, but also a ground game in terms of uh, addressing particular communities, the Black and Latinx communities, addressing the rural communities, addressing the faith-based community. And it's clear that we've learned some, some, some lessons as we've gone along. And the first is you've got to meet people where they are, literally and figuratively, by the way. You've got to meet them where they are. Um, and instead of telling them what to do, listen, and then provide them with the facts. The other thing that's critically important is mobilizing trusted messengers. These trusted messengers we found are physicians, your local, your personal physician, your local pharmacist, pastors, leaders within the community, and mobilizing them as well as friends and, and neighbors and relatives in terms of uh, trying to get people more vaccine confident. Now, that that's continues to be a struggle. We recently held a rural healthcare summit focusing on access to vaccine vaccinations as well as hesitancy in rural communities. We worked with Blue Star families in a partnership to focus on vaccinations in the military. And we're continuing to work with a variety of other organizations with the business community on efforts that the business community can make to help employees who want to get vaccinated to get vaccinated. And that, I think, is going to have to continue. Now, I think that that one important thing that may occur here in the future is when these vaccines receive full FDA approval, I think we'll see a greater uptick in confidence, certainly among people who are, who are sitting on the fence right now. And that will be a, an important development to leverage in this campaign. But uh, the campaign is, is one that's going to have to continue because we've got to get uh, to higher levels of coverage across this country. And we, we see right now what's happening when in areas where we don't have higher levels of coverage with the Delta variant exploding. It's very interesting also to, to think about, you know, the Ad Council has played very important roles historically at moments when it's been necessary, they've had, they brought the brilliance to the table of capturing in a very simple, full, powerful way, the message that people need to receive. In this case, it, that's not been so easy. I know that the Ad Council went through all sorts of deliberations. These have been recorded and reported on about the process of trying to engage with focus groups, engage with people, different segments. We're a very complicated and diverse country, many different types of people. Say a few words about the Ad Council's role and how do you begin to judge whether it's registering with people? Because 
another thing that people have commented on is in all of the noise in this highly politicized environment in America, where all of these things, tests, vaccines, masks have become politicized, people begin to turn off some of the PSAs and some of the other ads, and they really want to be treated locally, one-on-one. But that, to my mind, that may be true, but there's still a very important role for something like the Ad Council. Well, I think there is. And as I said, while a lot of people, when you say the Ad Council, a lot of people think of PSAs as being the major product. There is an equally robust ground game, and we leveraged the COVID Collaborative for that ground game. If you think about the COVID Collaborative, we had it under the Ad Council, we had an entire messaging group and dissemination group that was informed by so many of the organizations on the COVID Collaborative, from the the American Public Health Association, to the NAACP, to the Congress of American Indians in tribal areas. So your point that this has to occur, I think, at two levels, at the national level in terms of PSAs and very prominent kinds of messaging, but where the rubber meets the road is local. And that's where the ground game has come in. And you don't see that as much It's not as visible unless you're in those communities, but the ground game has been particularly important. And it's going to be, you know, one that we're going to have to continue to play out and see if we can change some of these attitudes and combat some of this misinformation. And that's the other thing, of course, that that we've been doing is, is trying to combat the misinformation that's out there. Very difficult. You've been very deeply engaged in education as well, working collaboratively with Danielle Allen at Harvard and elsewhere. Say a bit about the schools and the education and the challenges and what was the contribution of those partnerships? That's been particularly important to us, not only K through 12, but even higher ed as well. And the work that we did, for example, with our task force on infection prevention and control in schools to support a return to in-person learning is a great example, not only of what we've done in the education sector, but but of, of, of how the COVID collaborative tries to work and tries to make a difference. The roadmap that was produced by that task force was highlighted in a New York Times Magazine cover story on the CDC. But what's interesting is the task force was convened by the COVID collaborative, but jointly led jointly led by Harvard Safra Center, Danielle Allen, Brown University School of Public Health, and New America. In turn, they brought together almost 50 leading experts in health and education, epidemiologists, the Association of Secondary School Principals, the Association of Elementary School Principals, the heads of state departments of health and education, parent associations, even the teachers' unions. And that group met almost weekly for several months and finally produced a set of very practical tools, the roadmap, um, uh, a use of funds memo telling schools how to make use of the ARP funds, um, RFPs if they wanted to do assessments of ventilation. So it was, it was a, a, a kit, a suite of very practical tools to empower schools to implement infection prevention and control. Now, that having been said, while those were the the 
public deliverables. In some ways, I'd argue that the real deliverable was simply getting these disparate groups around the same table. They didn't always agree, but they listened to one another, and eventually they found common ground, which, let's face it, is in short supply. And that's what COVID Collaborative is about, is finding that common ground. One thing I wanted to ask you on the New York Times Sunday Magazine piece, which was Janine Interlundi was the author of that, as I recall. It posited that the COVID Collaborative was in opposition to or antagonistic to CDC. I, I didn't find that entirely convincing. It didn't seem to me that your work, maybe CDC was stumbling or having trouble in its guidance and certainly in the period of the Trump administration, it was being targeted and savaged in various ways. But I didn't see your work as as a critique of CDC itself. No, I, I agree with that. And I thought that the, the article aired in that. We work very closely with the CDC. We work very closely with the CDC Foundation, in particular on the on the education, vaccine education campaign, for example. We see ourselves as, as augmenting and supportive, We're never meant to supplant um, and certainly never meant and never intended and have never been in opposition. Congratulations on those achievements. They're really remarkable. This is a long war, right? I mean, the emergency phase of this is much longer than what we thought. And there's no time for we may be celebrating our reopening in across much of America, but we're still struggling with a, you know, we're back up to almost 40,000 cases a day. Hospitalizations are way up. 80% of people over 65 are fully vaccinated, which is wonderful. But we're still under, we still got half of America that's not vaccinated and 30% very hesitant, if not actually active refusals it's dangerous. It's a dangerous situation. What what do you see yourselves doing in the next six to twelve months? Well, I think that we've got we've got two problems, right? We we have two Americas, vaccinated and unvaccinated, and globally, there are two. The world, the globe, is split between the vaccine haves and the vaccine have-nots, and COVID collaborative has to address both of those issues. And, and continue to do so in as creative a way as we possibly can. In the near term, as schools reopen, we're going to be focusing a lot on supporting a return to in-person learning. We're going to be entering the fall, and we could see a combination of flu and COVID and, and more cases arising, and we're going to have to focus on that. Uh, we're going to have to focus on empowering decision makers on some of these difficult questions involving vaccines and hesitancy. And globally, we're going to have to try and, and see if we can close that gap between the vaccine haves and have-nots. So unfortunately, you know, the, the two challenges mirror one another. And But what is critically important is to recognize the interrelationship between the two. The Delta variant came from India, and it's now spreading like wildfire throughout the United States. Unfortunately and tragically, you know, it may well be that uh, the tipping point in America comes as hospitalizations and deaths ramp up due to the Delta variant or some more dangerous variant yet to emerge. 
And people finally realize that you can't put out the fire here until you put it out everywhere. I hope it doesn't come to that. And we need to try and stay ahead of that curve. And that's what COVID Collaborative is trying to do both domestically and in our global engagement with you, which is which has been such a pleasure and, and the Center for Global Development and others. And that kind of collaboration has to continue and we'll find further collaborations domestically. This has been a fascinating and very uplifting conversation, Gary. Thank you. We ask each of our guests at the closing of our conversation to reflect on what gives you the greatest hope and optimism now looking ahead, both domestically, internationally. It is very, we're in a very, very perilous moment internationally. It's, it's shocking. It's terrifying to watch what's happening in so many places and the gaps are not getting closed and uh, and we're at a perilous moment here in the United States too despite the really remarkable gains of of the last several months what's your thoughts on what gives you greatest hope and optimism what gives me the greatest hope and optimism is that America rises to the occasion in my experience we rose the occasion on HIV we rose the occasion after 9/11 we're going to rise the occasion now faced with COVID, both, and when I say rise the occasion, not only domestically, but also internationally. I, I believe that we've got the resources to do it. I believe that we have the wherewithal to do it. And I believe that we have, if we can muster it, the will to do it. And so that's what gives me the greatest hope is that we've done it before. America rises to the occasion, and I think it's going to rise to this occasion as well. And and we're gonna we're gonna end this pandemic, not only here but everywhere. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thanks for your leadership and your friendship and everything that you've accomplished with the COVID Collaborative. And uh, it's, this has been a delightful conversation this morning. So thank you. Thank thank you for allowing me. Uh, and for the engagement and the continued engagement with CSIS, which has been so productive and, as I said, is so paradigmatic of the kinds of work that COVID Collaborative has done and seeks to do in the future. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.